Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. As clinicians, we spend a decade or more as trainees learning to take care of patients. When we finally start our careers, we want to build research programs, but then we find that our years of clinical training did not adequately prepare us to lead a research program. Through no fault of our own, we struggle to find mentors, and when we can't, we quit. However, clinicians hold the keys to the greatest research breakthroughs. For this reason, the Clinician Researcher podcast exists to give academic clinicians the tools to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. Now, introducing your host, Teosi Onwemina. Welcome to the Clinician Researcher Podcast. I'm your host, Chayasi on Wemina, and it is a pleasure to be talking with you today. I'm especially excited because I have an amazing guest today on the show, Dr. Lance Okeke. Lance, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you, Chayasi. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Lance, you are a clinician scientist, and I want to say that there are not many like you. And I know we went to residency together, <laughs> so I know you had clinical training like I do, and you are not PhD trained. So how did you make it? How did you transition from being a clinician to becoming a, a scientist? Yeah, no, Tosi, thank you again for the opportunity. It's It's been now, I think I would say 12 years since this journey started, starting back to my end of my clinical year and infectious fellowship in summer of 2011, somewhere around there. And, you know, I, I my, my interest in kind of HIV and cardiovascular disease, where is my, which is my area of focus right now, came partially with, from the fact that like I had to develop an interest in HIV that occurred probably towards the end of my, the end of my residency program, but also solidified by the good opportunity I had while I was a third year resident going to Kenya and seeing the state of HIV and HIV epidemic, having taken as inflection from kind of like massive deaths, but still high incidence, but better control and um, really kind of hit this plateau of like, well, what do we do now that we're keeping all the people that were dying five years ago alive into their 40s, 50s, and 60s? What does the next stage of the epidemic look like? And is there risk associated with continued uh, chronic infection? And so I came from away from that 10-week rotation. Uh, the last year of my residency was like, yes, this is a, a problem that I want to pursue. And so I was able to kind of uh, finish off a hospital year and then start my infectious disease fellowship and started my clinical research career in earnest in, in some, the summer of 2012. And at that time, you know, like I always kind of had this impression that I had an idea, I had a focus, and I thought I had like a, a mentoring team. But then it kind of, I found out very early on that the mentoring team that I had didn't really have the research infrastructure that was a- available and ready to support my career development. It was just absent. And so literally the first couple of papers that I published were on, were based on databases that I abstracted the data myself, 1500 patients, um, looking at hypertension outcomes in this group and and the use of uh, um, evidence-based uh, strategies for CBD control in that context. And so statin use, aspirin use, and we published our paper. Um, I'm just kind of, I'm blanking on the, the first journal it was, but really this was just me going to the electronic health record and abstracting data myself 
for all 1400 patients. It's a resource. Whoa. Yeah. Yep. It's a resource that was used by used by many after that, but it was just I just did the work. There wasn't anything here, so I I did it, and and that's kind of what gave me the confidence uh, to say, you know what, like in some cases, it's probably not the prescribed path forward, but in some cases, you can make your own destiny, and you can start your program from from nothing. Fortunately, I had a division chief that was supportive and saying, you know what, if you feel like you can do, use the elbow grease, kind of do it yourself and move things forward, then do it. And, and I was fortunate to kind of have that time to develop and flounder on my own and figure it out. But soon after, probably about a year into this process, my mentor moved on to another position, another institution. And then I was like straight out by myself on, on with uh, no support whatsoever, no mentoring team to be seen. And then kind of things got really, really hairy for about a, a year and a half afterwards. Fortunately, I was able to make some cold calls and I found a, a, a really awesome collaborator and mentor and now a friend of mine in, in uh, population health. I'm not sure if I should be mentioning names, but who was really, really gracious, had no idea about HIV, but I came to him with a plan uh, for continued retrospective studies, but also an intervention. Mm-hmm. And it was based on his expertise and that intervention that I wrote my first, my first K proposal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Fast forward two years later, after six submissions, visions and re-revisions and demos and getting rejected, we finally, on our seventh attempt, were able to refine it to the point where uh, we got it. We got funded. Wait, 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 wait! Seven attempts. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was good at summary statements. You oh. know, I, oh. I was summary statements. Oh. And, and, but, but that to me was kind of like the building the academic muscle of kind of grantsmanship, right? Like, mm. it, all right, how am I going to make it better the fifth time when I send this proposal in? Mm. And, and I, I didn't take, I didn't lose heart. I knew my idea was a good one and one that was needed. Mm. Um, we just kind of kept on working on it. And I think to me, it's, it wasn't a hidden curriculum that educated me. It was really the, the classic curriculum of, uh, of a trial, trial and error mm. center of science that educated me and how I kind of moved along the scientific space from, from then on. And so uh, that's what I would say. Wow. <laughs> wow. Okay, Lance, so much in your story. The first thing I heard is your passion. You found something you cared about and you dared to believe that you could build a research career out of something that you cared about and you thought would be impactful. And it sounds to me that that was a driving force. And clearly you had a plan going into your fellowship research space where many people are still just trying to figure out what do I really like? What do I really care about? I wonder to what extent was that an advantage for you? And what do people do if they don't have that? Yeah, you know, I think it's really interesting because I'm actually having these conversations actively with our fellowship director right now. It's a really, it's, it's a really interesting space about what a clinical fellowship program really is. Mm. Is, it a, is it a graduate school PhD program equivalent where you should really be kind of gearing the availability of potential opportunities within the realm of specialty to a bunch of like fresh PhD students and everybody tries to advertise what their lab is doing? Or is it a postdoc program where you should actually have some level of sophistication mm. going into your research years or your fellowship? I, I tend to think it's the latter in which, you know, we do expect a certain level of sophistication. And the goal of the fellowship program is not to 
kind of say, well, here are all the potential opportunities in, in hematology, like um, choose one, but really like, okay, you've had time to at least identify an idea and an area of interest. Let us as a fellowship program, the postdoctoral program that it really is, foster that, build that, and, and give you the resources to succeed in that regard. And so in many ways, it's, it's, uh, it's a heavier lift in the graduate program, right? Because, because the expectation is not that you're just going to walk in as a fresh PhD student and say, oh, here are all these labs carrying on with their regular operations. Maybe you can hit your code to one. It really is the fellowship program responsibility to customize their, their um, operations make sure you succeed because you're exclusively a postdoc under their, under their tutelage. And the expectation is that they drive you towards um, independent investigation. And so in many ways, I think that the key is that when you choose your fellowship programs and that stage of development, that you're very, very intentional to kind of look, not just at, if you're a researcher, not just at, okay, is, is a clinical training going to be, be rigorous? But who is it within that division that you can see yourself modeling your career after to the best of your ability at the cross-section of residency to, to, to researcher transition? And then really, first and foremost, base your decision on fellowship choices based on if you can find that person within that division. If you can't, and it's not going to be a perfect fit, but if there's no one that's not even close to a fit to what you're doing, then that's probably not the best program for you. And so I, I would encourage residents coming up to try to go up into this space to really kind of be critical of how they see their mentors from a, from a interest alignment standpoint when they choose their fellowship programs. That would be mm -hmm. my biggest. No, that's really good. That's really good. I want to go back to what you talked about, about whether it's a graduate program versus a postdoctoral program where you should come with some level of sophistication. But the challenge is there is no research training in our clinical training. So by the time you come to your postdoctoral program, you're not like a PhD trained person who's pretty much been doing research for four or five years. You literally are a clinician who's been stuck doing clinical work for at least eight years. So to some extent, they're not sophisticated. How can, they, how can people become sophisticated or to what extent can programs help sophisticate people, if you can say that? Yeah, you know, I think, I think, I think it's, a, it's a really interesting thought to see. I think that we underestimate the value of our clinical knowledge. Mm, so okay. on, one, on one end, where the postdoc comes in with a lot of like basic science training in the context of like uh, basic science research and methodology and all that, they don't have the, the ability to kind of generate relevant ideas that a clinician has based on their actual kind of touch and feeling of clinical conditions and how they manifest. And so mm. I, th I think there's a trade-off, you know, the post- mm -hmm. PhD level poster has things. And, and, and of course, there's dimensions for kind of comparison there, right? Like, so if it's like a really heavy basic science PhD lab, like super molecular, super granular, whatever, then of course, you as a clinician coming into that environment have a whole, a really, really steep curve to, to, to climb. Whereas for someone that's going to come into my research program, all I require is that they have some working knowledge of, of HIV and epidemiology coming in to that. And what they don't have, where the gaps exist, you fill in your skill sets, kind of like make sure you can kind of, you're up and running. So I, I consider, right, that fellowships are not, fellowship programs or research years are really your opportunity to kind of like 
build your skills in the context of the career that you're trying to generate, watching how your PI operates and filling in the skills that you don't have to kind of reset level of sophistication. It's not like, let, let me see if I'm interested in, in <laughs> crypto caucus or basic biochemistry or, or whole genome sequencing. It's literally like, here's, here's a restricted set. You've, you've expressed this interest. How can we kind of fill in those skill sets and what you need to kind of take it and go? And, and you know, if that time is literally that you're spending two years in a lab, spending those two years learning those methodologies that the postdocs, the PhD postdocs had coming in, then that's, that's valid, right? Yeah. That is absolutely valid. And that's what you should be doing for that entire two years. The hope that eventually in a two to four year time frame, you feel that you've, you're on an accelerated curriculum, but one that's that's empowered and driven by the fact that you had clinical context walking into that wet lab and going. And so it's not going to be like a PhD student that comes off the street. It's like, I'm taking my clinical expertise, emerging kind of methodology and, and whatever in molecular genetics or whatever the field may be. And I expect that because I had some prerequisite of expertise going into that, that this path of sophistication should be accelerated in, in the time of the fellowship research years give you. So, and, and we know for that, especially in the basic sciences, two years may not be enough. It might mm. be three, three four. Mm -hmm. But the advice, obviously, is just to take as long as you need, mm. need to go because that's okay. your last. I like it. I like it. So, okay. What I'm hearing, so you, you, when you're talking about that level of sophistication, I think it doesn't come naturally and it doesn't come easily and it's definitely not part of our training, right? Because going through medical school, there's a curriculum. You're, you're going to follow the curriculum. There's not like your own curriculum that you create. Maybe you take an elective or two. Yeah. Going through residency, it's the same thing. You're kind of just like sheep going through the, the whole process. And so where do you develop that level? I mean, I, I get what you're saying. It's like you're a clinician. You know where the problems are and you know what's interesting to you. And I think where people start is, why, well, who is the superstar mentor and how can I you know, build my career around this mentor. And what you're talking about is flipping the script and saying, no, 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 who am I? What do I want to do? And what are the resources around to support me? That's not a, that's not a common way of thinking. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not a common way of thinking, but I think it's one that, that I think probably is most beneficial to, to you, right? It's like, you need to just have a really clear interest. And it's actually a, a you know, I serve as associate fellowship director for the ID program. It's actually, for me, an evaluative criterion for the fellows that we're getting. Mm. It's like, tell me who you are, right? Tell me who you are and tell me how you're looking based on who you are on where who you want to work with going forward. Mm. You only know so many of the details of, 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 of the, the people, the faculty in our division, but if you know who you are well enough, you can figure out and be strategic to how you fit, align your interests with existing resources in most places. Mm -hmm. um, but I mean, I think, I think the key is tell me who you are and, 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 and be very thoughtful. Of course, with the guidance of, of faculty going up going, um, as, during your fellowship years about what skills you need to get to, to, get to their level. What are the skill sets you need? Because that's where the fellowship program serves, right? Is filling in those gaps based on your interests and then letting mm. you come. I, I agree. It hasn't been the traditional way that things are, uh, um, are done, but I think in many ways it's unless, unless we, we kind of foster that level of ingenuity, mm. expect that we're building kind of like isolated research trees of like, Oh, this is the, 
Jones line of investigators, and everyone mm-hmm. was doing research. <laughs> research that Jones started in 1975. We're young, kind of Austrian, like independent mm. investigators, then that has to be the approach. It's like, yes. what is this? Make it happen. Because somehow they did. You know? Yes. Yes. No, I love it. It's not, you're not building a clone army. And no. somehow, sometimes the prevailing model is the clone army. I'm a superstar success. Come be like me. And and there's a lot of that. But but really, it's it's helping people foster their independence. There's already something that you're excited about. How do we help you grow that? Because you're yeah. going to grow it well. And this is a hard journey. You submitted seven times. <laughs> it's not the kind of thing you want to keep resubmitting something you don't care about. And many times I, I do feel like many young people are stuck in that in that place. Our junior faculty are stuck in that place. Now, I, I, I want you to speak about this whole concept of knowing yourself, knowing what you want. Because you took a year and did a, a hospitalist fellowship. Like what I'm hearing is that you don't want people coming to your fellowship program starry-eyed saying, I'm not really sure what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's not going to fly. Yeah. I, I, I would say that's a fair characterization. Honestly, I, I say that, but our program is probably more forgiving in that regard than many other in the country, right? And that they're actually, I remember when I was interviewing for ID fellowships at a number of places and I interviewed widely across the country. They actually asked the question straight up. Who are you going to work with when you get here? Mm. You know? Now, I personally think that's a little bit extreme. And I never framed the question that way. Mm. But I, I do say, what are your interests? And let us do the work of trying to align you with the best person based on your interests. Mm. What we don't want to do is give you like 15 options and, and say, okay, well, you know, you have 15 options of all the things you can do in, in, in infectious diseases and oh, I don't know what I want to do. And then all of a sudden, between 40, 48 weeks of continuous clinical medicine mm. in your, and July 1 of your second year, you're supposed to figure it out magically. Right. Like, right. What, are, what are your decisions being based off of? Mm. If, 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 we're, if we're not giving you a time to kind of think. And so, in, in my opinion, the thinking should have happened slowly but longitudinally over a long period of time, whether it be like the two years prior or whatever. And, and if and it's and also it's okay to say if if that's not your path and that's not how you accompany things, how, how you process things, and that's okay too. I mean, I think there are many fine clinician educators out there, right? There are many fine people that have actually kind of figured it out like two months before and says, I run around transplant ID and now I want to study aspergillus for the rest of my life. If that's the case, then that's great. I will say that is is rare that's mm. typically what happens and we sh- i i feel that there's a little bit of a we have a responsibility to our trainees to let them know that the likelihood of them figuring out their life and research in the two months leading up to when they have to make a decision on july 1st of their second year fellowship is is highly unlikely mm. that that that's that thread that narrative should mm. be sure so it's almost like right now we are dependent on the chemistry. Let's see if as you're seeing patients, there'll be chemistry between you and a certain population. And then you'll know that this is a population you're working with. But what you're talking about is forgetting the romance chemistry that may may help you figure it out and just being thoughtful, being thoughtful about what you care about and how the resources of the institution potentially could support you. And if that means taking time off to figure it out, it is important, but it really takes time to think. 
And when you're in the midst of your clinical training, you are so busy clinically, you may not have that space to think. Mm-hmm. And coming to these decisions take thought, they take time, they take space. And you should be thinking about how do you create the space to be able to make a good informed decision. Absolutely. And I think, I think the reason why there has, it has to be longitudinal to is think, think about it. You went through this process. You start from when you're an intern and take that time period consecutively, if in case of internal medicine, to the time, you, the day you finish your clinical fellowship, right? And now you're about four or five years in and now all of a sudden you're supposed to be a research, you're supposed to have a research plan. What, what I would encourage is that you have to be thoughtful of the small steps along the way that kind of gear you towards that interest all the way through, because you're not going to have two weeks to just kind of sit back and kind of strategize. Okay, here's what I'm going to do in my life now. But the, but the journey is actually meant interest in many ways in that thread, right? Of like, here's where I started. Here's how I knew I was interested in hematology. Then I did some extra around with hematology. And I really, really liked it. And then I, I, then I was like, well, hmm, this sickle cell clinic is kind of cool. I'm going to do a little bit more of that. And then I got to hematology fellowship and like, okay, well, here are the aspects of sickle cell that I'm really interested in. And so let me try to find a program that have people kind of doing that. I may not know all the answers right now, but I like sickle cell and I like this aspect of of patient-centered sickle cell research. I'm going to do that. And then you get to somewhere where someone's doing that and boom, like in a way you go, but it's not going to be a epiphany. It's not, and it's not, but it's because of the lack of time we have to decompress and strategize. And I think the earlier we tell folks to kind of actually have this longitudinal evolution over time that occurs in small increments over the course of those four, those four years leading up to your first day of, of clinical, clinical, your first day of a research fellowship, I think is key. I mean, in many ways it's, it's scary because you're like, well, you're making big decisions. You're making big, such big life decisions with no time to decompress and strategize, mm. right? And, and in many ways, that's true. I mean, it's, it's always been my problem with going back to medical school. How do you decide medicine or surgery or pediatrics or OBGYN based on what information? And, and mm. all of a sudden, midway through your third year, you have to start to make decisions of how you're going to spend the rest of your life as a surgeon or, as a, or, a, or a medicine doc or a pediatrician. Based on what information did you make that decision? However, we make those inform- those decisions anyway. Mm. So I think the same applies here, where it's like literally like taking that time, the small the little time you get with the small increments over time to really kind of land, find out where you're landing, and then come to that point in time. And maybe maybe for for the rare few of us that have that epiphany, that's good for you. But I think that's not the typical path and one that we should expect to. Um, expect in most cases. Sure. So what I'm hearing is more, we've got to cultivate the interest over time and foster people really thinking about what is it that they really want to do. Okay. So I want to go back to the seven applications you did for a career development award. Yeah. At what point along that journey did you want to quit and what kept you going? Yeah. I am very internally motivated. So, so to me, like, it was always like, I, I'm just gonna, I'm stubborn. I'm just gonna prove I can do it. And it was, it was, it was my, it wasn't the pressure from others. It wasn't like the fear of failure. I'm just wired where it's like, I'm going to get, I'm just going to ram this thing through one way or the other. And so I can't really say that I ever felt like quitting because I had it in my head that, you know, 
this is a good idea. Mm. I, I want to prove to myself that I can do this. Mm. And so, and so I'm going to do it. You know, the times, if, if there's a time where I felt like quitting or I felt like lost enough where I was like, maybe I should be doing something different. It was actually when my mentor left in early 2004. So my, the beginning of my third year of clinical uh, fellowship. And I was like, yeah, this is like, there's really no clear path forward here. But, you know, I kind of embrace that challenge and say, okay, well, let's just at the worst case in the worst case. And, and here's where I always, it's probably insensitive to the, to the experiences of a lot of people, but in many cases, we're, we're, we're blessed. We're fortunate to have such a high ceiling as a highly trained medical professional. Mm. What is truly the fear of failure here is not like the person out in the street working 40 hours a week at for $15 an hour and they lose their job. They're potentially on the street and can't make their rent. At worst, at worst, you, you get a clinical job somewhere and your family will be fine and you'll earn whatever money. It may not be what you want to do for the rest of your life, but at least you're financially secure. So to me, like, I was like, you know, if I'll just do this till they, they tell me I can't do it anymore. <laughs> they come, I still have a pretty good job somewhere. Mm. So I can't complain that much. So yeah, the, I wasn't really driven by that fear of failure or, and, and I think a lot of it in many ways too, was that I've never really completely tied my identity mm. of self-esteem to this work. Like this is work I enjoy, is work I care about. But fundamentally, I know that that there are many other things I can be doing. I just choose to do this. And if it doesn't work, you go do something else. I'm not a failure, so to speak. And so, oh, wow. I love that. It's a fundamental faith in yourself and your ability to move work forward. It's also recognizing that you'll be okay if it doesn't work out and it's worth doing as long as you can do it. And it sounds like you enjoy doing it and therefore you did it. And, and I love that because it's really about really loving the work that we do and not doing work just because somebody gifted it to you, which is a different, you know, you come at it differently. You interact with the work differently as well. So, so I really appreciate that you talked about that. One thing you alluded to is the finances. And I want to, I want to speak to that because Dr. Lance, okay, okay, you're doing all this awesome research work and resubmitting and submitting the K. How are you making ends meet? Yeah, you know, I, I, it's it's an interesting question, Toyopsi. I, I, you know, I, and and there there are many ways my thoughts can go on that, but I will I will say this that it is difficult. It is interesting. It is sobering to know that you know I could kind of drop all these extra hours of work that I'm doing right in these grants and actually go make more money in private practice or or wherever. Right? Is it tempting? Not really, because I mean I enjoy my work and. I mean, everything looks seems monotonous. Every, all the other options seem pretty monotonous to me where I don't have my intellectual, academic creativity as a driver of what I do every day when I wake up in the morning. That's, that, that is a loss. You know? it's, not, it's not failure, but it's a loss if you don't have that in your life anymore. And so in many ways, as a researcher, you've made a decision that you're going to take the institutional discount on, on your earnings <laughs> just so that you can preserve your academic creativity as a driving force of the work that you do every day. Whether that's right or wrong, I think is, is, is really open for, for a question. Now, of course, I'm biased one, one way versus the other, but in many ways, I've, 
I guess, come to terms with it that, you know, at least I don't have to round C24 patients every waking day of my life because that would be really, really tough for me. And so, so I, I say this is a, this is a privilege tax and I get to do the work that I enjoy. And, and every day that I get to do this work is, is a privilege. And if, them, if my salary is going to be docked partially because of it, then, then so be it. I, th- I think fundamentally, though, in terms of value added for what we do as researchers, as scientists, the entire system is completely wrong, right? But we know the realities of how institutions are compensated and how health systems make their money. And so, unfortunately, this is probably a reality of, of, of being a researcher that we'll face for the duration of our careers. But hopefully I'm wrong. Mm, I love that. I think what I hear undergirding that is that I love my work. I like to do this work. And the value it brings to me is worth the cost because it costs you to do this work. But you don't look at it as a cost. You look at it as what you're enjoying. And I just think it's really refreshing and beautiful because I feel like in medicine, there's so much of, I got to do this. I got to do this. This is an obligation. This is what I got to do. And which is fine. You feel like you have to do it, but you get to a point in your career. And it's usually in making that transition from fellowship to faculty well, you don't have to just do whatever. Well, you get to choose. And, 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 and you should choose a thing that matters to you. Yeah, I love it. Thank you for sharing that. All right, we have come to the end of the show. And I want to ask you, you know, what final thing have we left unsaid that somebody needs to hear, especially someone who's thinking, but I don't know. I, I don't know what I want to do with my life. <laughs> this research thing sounds cool. What, what, what advice would you have? What I would say to Ossie, and thank you so much again for the opportunity, is this, that I, I want to anchor on that last point that I made about the privilege of being able to use your ingenuity and your creativity to drive the work that you care about. The researcher, the scientist, in many ways, is, has the privilege and is unique within our realm of clinical medicine of being able to do that, right? And so to me, no matter how difficult it is with with NIH fund rates and like, what are the, how far, what are the award rates for each institution and how hard is it to get your care or how hard is it to make art transition? I know why I choose this work. And it's because of what I said, which is I get to use my ingenuity, my creativity to do work that I care about. And as long as that's the driving force for, for my, the, the work that I've devoted my professional life to do, then I think I'll be okay. And, and I want, I hope that, that because I mean, I think I really truly believe that once you kind of abandon that opportunity with, with your professional choices early in your career, it's really hard to go back to it. And so I hope that for trainees, for fellows listening to this, they, they don't abandon, they don't forfeit that privilege of using your creativity to drive your work lightly. It's, it's, the, it's the mandate of the researcher, of the scientist, and one that's, a, that's available to all who uh, graduate medical school and want to look into careers in academia, which if you forfeit it only if you want to. And if you do, think about it before you do and think about what wakes you up in the morning. And um, so that's why I do what I do. And at a pay cut, pay cut nonetheless, but I'm thankful to have the, the ability and privilege to do it. So. Oh, that's so awesome. Lance, thank you so much. Thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thank you, Toyosi. All right, everyone. You heard Lance. This is this this work is is it's meaningful. It's fun. 
We get to use our creativity. We get to do amazing things and make impact at the same time. And if you want to, you absolutely can. And definitely believe in yourself and do what it takes to, to fill the gaps that you have. All right. It's been a pleasure talking to you all. I look forward to talking with you again the next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Clinician Researcher Podcast, where academic clinicians learn the skills to build their own research program, whether or not they have a mentor. If you found the information in this episode to be helpful, don't keep it all to yourself. Someone else needs to hear it. So take a minute right now and share it. As you share this episode, you become part of our mission to help launch a new generation of clinician researchers who make transformative discoveries that change the way we do healthcare.